Welcome to today's edition of the Insights Podcast on the Huddle Network. I'm Don Mills. And I'm David Campbell. Today, uh, we're going to focus our attention on world population. And uh, I read a book recently that I think uh, was uh, pretty earth shattering for me. It was called Empty Planet. It's a book by uh, Daryl Brick- Bricker, who's the uh, global CEO of public affairs for Ipsos, uh, one of my former competitors, by the way, uh, and John Ibison, who is a columnist for the Globe and Mail. And uh, what their book has done is really set the, uh, the world uh, on notice that uh, we may not be growing our population uh, as quickly uh, in the world as we thought. Uh, in fact, most projections uh, indicated by the end of this century, by the year 2100, there would be 11 billion people on our planet. That would be up from the current population of about 8 billion. So big numbers. Uh, what's a billion, I guess, between friends. Um, and uh, right now, uh, what based on their uh, assessment and, and analysis, um, they believe that uh, the world's population is, will be peaking in the next uh, 20 years by or so by the mid-century, uh, and then it will amazingly start to, de- the, uh, to decline. And uh, the interview that we have with Daryl uh, really indicates the reasons for that, which are both economic uh, and social and compelling. Uh, So um, one of the things that is clear uh, uh, for anybody doing following population and demographics is that the replacement rate for the population, the fertility rate needed is 2.1 babies for every female. Why 2.1? Well, it's the makeup for people, uh, for, for kids who, are, who, uh, who don't survive and for women who don't have children. Uh, currently, the, replace, the fertility rate in Canada is only 1.5, which means if we weren't attracting uh, immigrants to our country, our population would already be shrinking. But uh, Canada decided a long time ago that uh, immigration was important to growing the economy and... Uh, yeah, they have ambitious plans to increase immigration to at least 400,000 for the foreseeable future. Now, what does it mean in terms of uh, where we are in Atlantic Canada? Well, in Atlantic Canada, our fertility rates range from a low of 1.45 in Newfoundland and Labrador to a high uh, of 1.61 in PEI. And you might ask, why is the difference that difference? It's not a big difference, but it's a significant difference in statistical terms. Why is PEI having a higher birth rate? Well, one of the reasons for that, as David and I have talked about in the past, is that they've been pretty successful in increasing the population through immigration. Immigrants that tend to be younger, of childbearing age, and guess what? They're getting younger by the day, right, David? Yes, uh, absolutely. So the median age on Prince Edward Island has been dropping for the last five years, it's slowly dropping, right? You, the, these big demographic trends take a while to settle in. But I mean, I had a look at some of this data uh, as well over the past few days, uh, specifically at the birth rates. And when you look at the Canadian data, one of the things that's very interesting is that in the prairies, the uh, birth rate, if you look at the, the number of births per thousand population, which is slightly different than the fertility rate, but it's a similar metric, 
If you look at those numbers in the prairie provinces, not British Columbia, but in the prairie provinces, it's 30% higher than it is in Atlantic Canada. So that's interesting. And that even when you adjust for the fact that the, on average, the population is younger out there, you're still looking at about 30% more babies born every year in the prairie provinces than you are in Atlantic Canada. So there's something going on there, something in the water or lack thereof that's driving a lower birth rate, uh, even among uh, you know the the population adjusted for for age group, so I think that's a real issue. I think um, you know the global issue, the global. Uh, I spend most of my time thinking about Atlantic Canada, but sometimes you do have to step back. And so I appreciated your interview with with uh, Daryl to talk about sort of the global implications of this and some of the implications as you get into Canada. Uh, <clears throat> but I think ultimately Canada is a fairly sparsely populated country still. Um, and I think there's lots of pop room for population growth and we're just going to have to be, you know, as uh, for these global migrants, we're going to have to be just sharpening our pencil and building a strong value proposition that Atlantic, <clears throat> Atlantic Canada is a good uh, destination for, uh, for these global migrants. Well, the other thing that Daryl uh, mentioned uh, in our discussion was the fact that the pandemic is actually uh, quite contrary to what many people would have thought perhaps, uh, um, has accelerated the fertility uh, decline uh, around the world. <laughs> and uh, so apparently people are deciding to have fewer children. Now, I don't know if it's because the pandemic has put fear in them about the future of the world or whatever, but it's a real trend and it really means that there will be even further downward uh, pressure on population growth as a result of that. Um uh, so, you know, a couple of examples that, uh, that I think is interesting, uh, China, which is currently the world's uh, largest uh, population uh, in, uh, in terms of uh, having one point, uh, I, I think it's 1.4 billion people in that country. Uh, India is quickly, rapidly in, uh, catching up, but their uh, fertility rate is only 1.2. And uh, at that pace... That continues. And of course, they don't have any immigration. They're a homogeneous uh, country, so they're not importing a population. Um, it's expected their population by the turn of the century, which is, uh, to be clear, it's 80 years from now. So it's a long time. Will it will drop to about a billion people. That's 400 million fewer people living in China which is astounding when you think about it. And uh, the Chinese already recognize this problem. They've changed their one person child policy to a three-person uh, policy, but as Daryl will point out, uh, that hasn't changed the behavior of the population. They're still uh, likely to have just a little over one child per family. And then uh, another example, which I found even more um, uh, meaningful, is Japan, which has also a low fertility rate of 1.4. And uh, their population, which is currently 125, 127 million, I believe, is ex projected to decrease to 95 million in the next 35 years. And again, another homogeneous population that does not uh, really have much immigration. Yeah, I mean, they put out a call uh, and they, it's still standing, but they're trying to bring people back to Japan that have Japanese lineage. So we have a friend. Uh, that is of Japanese lineage, and they've been recruited actually to move back. So it's kind of interesting how that's tied to your 
to your actual uh, lineage there. But I do think the difference is Japan has has pioneered the use of robots and automation. So they're out front in terms of trying to to actually grapple with the implications of the decline. Uh, and so that I think is going to be beneficial to them, but there will be a point at which it's almost impossible to provide services or have any kind of meaningful economic activity. If you've got, you know, as your, as your population continues to shrink, uh, relative to your aging population. So this is the, the challenge globally is around the dependency ratio and, and economists talk about the number, the, the ratio of people that are in work in the labor market to the ratio of people who, who that aren't in the labor market, particularly older people. Uh, and as that changes globally, it's going to put a lot of costs into things like health care and taking care of our elderly population. Uh, and it's going to put more and more pressure uh, on the economy to do so. So we'll see how that plays out. Now, as you said, 2100 is a long time off. Decision, changes in decisions now and, and changes in policy now that encourage more births uh, could totally alter that and we could get back on the path to 11 million billion. So I'm not even sure that's a good idea, right? There, you, we have resource issues. We have the, 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 the stressing of our, our food systems and so on. So actually the idea of shrinking the population by 2100 is probably pretty attractive. We just have to make sure our economic models are also shifting uh, so that we can support uh, the, the global population with a, with a shrinking base of people actually in the workforce. You know, I think, uh, again, the, this book is really important on a number of levels. So for policymakers, although it seems like a long way off, there are some there are some near-term implications, I think, to countries like Canada that are dependent on immigration to grow, grow their populations. Uh, as uh, as populations start to decline in the next 20 or 30 years, it's not that far away, Um uh, people uh, may not have the same need to immigrate to other countries, um, uh, which means the competition for immigrants likely to increase. And so Canada has been blessed by having, you know, the choice of immigrants uh, based on their qualifications. And that system's actually worked out pretty well for the country. But uh, I can see a, a time in the future where uh, you may have to incentivize uh, immigrants to come to countries in a different way. Um, so that's one of the uh, near-term uh, uh, consequences. There are longer-term consequences as well that uh, I think will get policy ma- uh, makers uh, thinking about. One of, the, one of the things for the private sector, I think, impacts, and again, uh, most of the people who are running business today will not be running businesses by 2100, but for their successors, the issue on consumption is uh, is a big one. So if China goes, for instance, from 1.4 billion to 1 billion people, that's 400 million people less to buy products produced within the country. And that's going to have a major impact on their economy. Uh, so... Uh, there is that side of it uh, that will be uh, a future concern for the private sector. Even things like housing demand. If you think about countries like Canada, for instance, or in the U.S. or the, the European Union, if those countries, you know, stabilize and 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 start to decline their population, you know, the demand for housing will shrink along with it. Um, and uh, so, you know, we may. We may get to a point where we have all the housing that we need in the world at some point in the future. The other, I think, impact 
that will be positive for the world is on the environment, as you mentioned earlier. Use of resources will not be as uh, in heavily uh, demand. Um, uh, greenhouse gases will be reduced uh, uh, even further. Uh, the demand on our food, the production system, which has been a concern. And one of the reasons people have been sounding the alarm about the growth of the population will recede in, in terms of imports. And in fact, the food production is, even under the scenario of a growing po- uh, world population, looked like they had figured out how to do that. So uh, lots of long-term implications. Uh, very, uh, very interesting book for people who are demogra- demographers, who study populations, uh, who are in positions of uh, informing policy decisions, because some of the, some of the things I think uh, policies uh, could be set in place now to make, uh, you know, start to deal with those issues uh, long term. Yeah. And on that front, in a few weeks, you and I are going to have a conversation with Lisa Leland from the Century Initiative. This is a national organization that's arguing Canada should target growing its population to 100 million people by 2100. And we'll be having a good conversation with her about that. And again, most of your and my focus is in the short term, but it is good to sort of step back once in a while and think about these longer term issues. And I'm very interested to hear what Lisa has to say about Canada's population, why it should grow that fast by 2100, and what are the implications here in Atlantic Canada? Yeah, so with that uh, that introduction, we'd like to uh, turn it over to uh, the conversation that we had with Daryl Bricker. And, uh, you know, I would recommend uh, anybody interested in this topic to read their book, Empty Planet. Uh, so here's, uh, here's Daryl. I am pleased to welcome Daryl Bricker, the global CEO of uh, Ipsos, to the Huddle Insights podcast. He is also an author, and among, along with John Ibbotson, a columnist with the Globe and Mail. He co-wrote the recent book called Empty Planet, which has challenged long accepted views about world population growth. Daryl, welcome to the podcast. Well, it's a great pleasure to be on with you, Don. Thanks for having me. Let's start by finding out a little bit about your background, Daryl. Tell us uh, about your career path that has led you to your present role with Ipsos. Well, I uh, did a PhD in political science at Carleton and previous undergraduate and graduate work at Wilfrid Laurier University. And my interest was always in social science, my background in political science. So I really started off in this business as a pollster, uh, doing uh, political, uh, political. And I was at a company called Decimal Research with Alan Gregg, who I know you know, and uh, obviously consider him a huge mentor and uh, somebody who uh, taught me an awful lot of what I still do today. Uh, and then I uh, moved to Angus Reid in 1990 after a stint in the prime minister's office where I was the director of research for about a year and a half and moved to Angus Reid and basically in one form or another I've been there since. So since 1990, which is a a full career, I think you could say. (laughs) uh, um, And uh, 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 Angus Reid was uh, sold to a company called Ipsos, uh, a French company, a global market research company back in 2000. And I stayed on and uh, have uh, uh, eventually ended up in the role of being the global CEO of Ipsos Public Affairs, where I'm responsible for the part of the company that does non-market research. So basically talking to people as citizens rather than as specifically consumers. And uh, that area of activity at Ipsos is about a 260 million, actually this year, probably closer to about 350 million euros business in 40 countries. So it's uh, it keeps me hopping. 
but uh, apart from that, uh, the other thing I, I'm you know, really passionate about, uh, about what we do in the world of uh, using data to uh, make uh, assessments of what's going on in the world, whether it's political polling or uh, working on research for governments to help them understand programs. But I also like to write. I think that that's a, a, a means of communicating a lot of you know, weighty ideas the way that we did in Antiplanet. So coming up with a controversial point that grabs people's attention, really based on data and say, you know, maybe there's a different way of looking at what our future is going to be like. Then. Well, you know, you've had a, an opportunity to work with two of the legends in, in our industry in Canada, and you're becoming a bit of a legend yourself. I mean, you know, to have a Canadian lead the global practice for, is it so it's the biggest company of its kind in the world or close to it, isn't it? I think we're number two or number three, depending on how you count it. But for social research, a global social research company, there's mm -hmm. no doubt that Ipsos is the market. Our next right. biggest competitor is uh, is probably half of them. Right. Uh, I also understand that you have a connection to the Maritimes. Can you tell, you about, tell us about that connection? Yeah, well, my father, I'm an Air Force brat. So my father served in the Royal Canadian Air Force. And uh, I consider the place that I grew up, grew up uh, Greenwood in, uh, in the Annapolis Valley where my dad was stationed. So I, uh, I lived there, uh, you know, my, my wonder years, I lived there. And, um, and my mother's from, uh, my mother's from, from Glace Bay. So uh, I consider myself to be a bit of a blue noser, although I live here in Toronto now. Yeah, well, we'll welcome you back anytime, Daryl. <laughs> well, my, if you read my next book called Next, I actually have a piece in there about retirement. And when I think of my, uh, but uh, I'm like you, Don, you know, we just, the old, the old pollsters, we, we never, uh, we never leave. We just kind of fade away. <laughs> so we, just, we do podcasts. We write books. Yeah. We do those kinds of things. But my, yeah. my dream retirement community is uh, is uh, Annapolis Royal, also in the Annapolis Valley, and I write about it in in, uh, in Empty Planet because it's really emblematic of what we're going to be talking about today, which is population change, population aging, and uh, Nova Scotia is uh, you know of the Canadian provinces has more probably in, in common with Italy. Than it does with, say, for example, a place like Alberta when it comes right. to population. Yeah, I was just in Annapolis Royal uh, uh, this fall, and uh, it's just a it continues to uh, amaze me what a great place it is uh, uh, to be. Um, <clears throat> now, Empty Plan is is not the first book that you've written, and and since you wrote that book, I think it was in 2019, you've written another one called Next. Uh, what led you to become an author in the first place, Daryl? I think, you know, Don, uh, the people that like you and me, um, we not only are interested in, uh, you know, sharing our, our insights with clients, we're also interested in providing um, insights from our work to the wider world. Uh, and uh, I think that people who do what we do have a responsibility when they've got really good ideas um, or what we think are really good ideas. We'll leave it to my uh, readers to decide whether they're really good ideas. Uh, but uh, to uh, to communicate what we're discovering, and if we've got some insights about what the future may hold, uh, whether it's uh, you know what's going to happen in an election campaign, or in the case of next and empty planet, what's going to happen in next to the Canadian population, and what's going to happen in empty planet to the globe, uh, to sh you know put those ideas out into the uh, into the broader uh, 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 into a broader discussion, so they can spark some insights, and and some people. Um, you know, like to go out and give presentations to groups of thinking people. Some people like to teach. They like to go to universities and, and you know, spread their ideas to uh, the younger generation. Uh, some people even um, 
do uh, podcasts and blogs <laughs> and do those kinds of things. Uh, I, I just find that my um, my way of my way of communicating is through writing longer form usually uh, when I've really got something I want to say and it's it's uh, it's by doing it in a book and and um, but I would say that it's not for the faint at heart and it really has to be your preferred way of communicating uh, because there certainly are different ways that you can get out similar types of messages that don't require you to spend four years writing a book. Uh, but it's just my chosen way of doing it. And Empty Planet was my sixth and, uh, and next is number seven. Um, and they've all done pretty well. So, um, you know, there's some incentive, I guess, from that perspective. But I like the idea of having something to be able to speak about when I go out and talk to people or something I can point to to kick off a, yeah. a, a bigger conversation and a book works well. Well, after I read the book, I, you know, I, I became a fan of the book. I thought it's a really important book, um, uh, especially for policymakers and those thinking about population demographics, uh, not just in Canada, but certainly in our region. Um, I consider it uh, really an important contribution to um, the discussion about population trends and demographics. Uh, most demographers have led us to believe the world population is rapidly growing and is, and is expected to reach 11 billion from its current population of about 8 billion by the turn of the century, placing great pressure on natural resources, food production, and the environment. Your research indicates that this will not happen, largely due to important societal changes across the world. That world population will peak in the next 30 years to around, I guess, 9 billion before beginning to decline by the end of the century. You and John made a compelling case for that conclusion. Walk us through the rationale for this rather surprising uh, new look at population. Well, um, one of the things that John and I talk about is what we call vertical knowledge. It's that thing that everybody knows that happens not to be true. And um, it's, uh, it's kind of like that uh, book, The Big Short, or the movie, The Big Short, when Everybody was assuming that something was going on in the marketplace and somebody bothered to look and discovered that actually something at, when you got, when you look at it at ground level and you really dug into it happened not to be true. And that's what empty planet is about. Um, everybody goes out and they quotes the UN's numbers, which you've just rolled out, which are now 10.9 billion. They've lowered them from 300 million um, since the last, uh, last projections they put out. They'll be lowering them again, guaranteed. Um, and uh, uh, so they, they quote those things and everything from uh, what they say about um, uh, the uh, uh, future of the climate and the environment through to what's going to happen in terms of, uh, of uh, you know, the, the UN's SDGs or their social development goals. I mean, these are always like the, the core element of what's said and, you know, the first couple of pages of, of everything. And it's the justification for people uh, making um, the policy uh, um, projections that they're making or making the policy uh, suggestions that they're making. And it's pretty shattering if you understand that actually what the, it's based on is not actually correct. So yeah. all John and I did was we looked. And, and, and part of that was me going through all of the uh, UN's modeling and looking at how they did their modeling and Don, you know, you and I are, are you know, old statisticians of, uh, hmm. of some repute, I would say. And, and uh, we know how it's not complicated. I mean, you can sit down and you can actually go through the modeling. But we live in what's, what I call a, a footnote culture these days. 
So if it comes from an authoritative source, all you do is you say, okay, it was these guys said it, so I'm just going to throw it in whatever it is, and I'm going to base everything what their assessment is, and people just never bothered, bothered to look. So I went and I looked. And then John and I uh, both looked at um, uh, other types of projections. And what we found um, was that there were other contrary projections that were actually uh, more um, in tune with what was happening in the world than what we were seeing from the UN. And that's where the book started. So there was a, a, a university professor, um, a two PhD university professor, interesting, interestingly enough, named Wolfgang Lutz, who uh, uh, is in the University of Vienna. And uh, I said this, I read an article that he wrote in, uh, where he was quoted, he didn't write it, he was quoted in an article in the English language edition of Der Spiegel. I don't know why I ran into this, I just ran into it. And he was the one that I thought crystallized it the best. He said, these things are never gonna happen and it's because they're not taking into account things like female educated and the impact that that's having on fertility. And we're not going to get to 11 billion people. It's probably going to peak at around, uh, I think at the time he was saying between eight and nine billion people sometime mid-century and it's going to decline after that. So that's a guy I have to meet. So I got on a plane and I flew to Vienna and uh, sat down with him and, you know, shy guy, um, statistician, very articulate. Um, and he had all of these charts on his walls. I write it, about it in the book. That was me at that interview with Wolfgang Lutz. And he went through his thinking and I went, oh my God, this guy is right. This guy is right. But it's it's all trees and it's no forest. I mean, he hasn't figured out how all of this fits together and how to tell this story. It's just a statistical story for him. There's a much bigger story. So we took that idea and other people who were coming to similar types of conclusions that hadn't really put it together as to what it all meant. Um, we 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 put it together and we put it in a narrative. And then the other thing that we did was we said it's not just a number story; it's a people story. So let's go out and look at how this is happening on the ground around the world and go and sit down with people in a slum, women in a slum in Delhi, and talk to them about their families. Or go to Brazil to uh, a favela where people uh, assume that birth rates are exploding. And the truth is, it's the exact opposite is happening uh, in both of those places. And after a while, this process of looking, this, this, the story became very clear that this was a really misleading uh, prediction about what the future was. We're still stuck back in the old Paul Ehrlich population bomb ideas where we're all going to be fighting in the streets in the 1980s for the last scrap of food or, or take it even back uh, furthest to, you know, to Malth, Robert Malthus and what he was saying about, uh, uh, you know, uh, um, the relationship between reproduction and our ability to produce uh, uh, food from agriculture. And, and he was wrong, too. And you just go back. I call them the millennium. And in fact, uh, uh, we call them uh, that in the book. I don't know if we use the exact term, but I always call them this, the millenarian Malthusians and the neo-Malthusians, people who still have this idea that, you know, almost like human beings are a plague in the world and they're going to destroy the place. And it's because they're going to way, way overpopulate. And the truth is, no, uh, it's, it's actually going to peak and it's going to come down. And there's almost no way that you can reverse that trend. It's The decisions have already been made. It's going to happen. The only question that we have is whether it's going to happen faster than people like um, people like Wolfgang Lutz were. Yeah, in your book, you you, you make the important point that uh, the fertility rates have been declining for a long time in a lot of places. Canada, you know, does not have a replacement uh, fertility rate right now, which is I think two point one per every female. We're down around 
1.4 or something like that. I can't remember the exact number. So that's why we depend on immigration. And uh, that's another part of the story, obviously. But if you look at uh, uh, in your book, you say there are two major factors that are changing um, birth rates. One is the continued urbanization that's happening in the world. And the second is, uh, you know, uh, females getting educated at a much higher rate than in the past. Can you just talk about those two things a little bit? Sure. So uh, life for women in the countryside is very different from, from, from life for women in the, in the city. And uh, calculations that people make about their families in the countryside in the city traditionally are very different. So in the countryside, uh, if you live in a rural community, if you live in a pre-industrial type of community, very agriculturally dependent, uh, it's a very logical thing to increase your size of your family uh, because it increases the size of your workforce, particularly free labor. Um, and uh, so when you're in the countryside, uh, it's logical to have a larger family. Take that same family and you move it to the city and it moves from being an asset to an expense. Uh, more kids are more mouths to feed. It's more expensive living in the city. Uh, they're not productive members of your family the same way that they, they would be in the countryside. So there's an economic reason for an economic logic to having smaller families in the city. So that's part of the equation. But the biggest effect is a sociological cultural effect. So when you live in the countryside, family is an incredibly important thing. Religion tends to be a more important thing. Um, and uh, the patriarchy continues to rule in many places in the countryside. So the pressure on women, familial, cultural, uh, the, the patriarchal pressures for women to have a religion, uh, for women to have large families, uh, continues to be larger in those places, along with poverty and fewer life options and that kind of thing. When women move from the countryside to the city, their lives change. So the, the examples of what their lives can be uh, tend to be more um, uh, educationally oriented and they tend to be more career oriented. And by career, I don't mean that, you know, you're trying to be as the CEO of a corporation, but you want to have your own independent income and some say in what happens in your family and having an income is part of having that say. So women's participation in the paid labor force tends to change as well. You get better opportunities for paid employment if you have an education. So the pressure in the, um, in the city for women is to live a life different than their mothers and their grandmothers lived in the countryside and to live a more modern for want of a better term, capitalist life in the city, which gives them more power over their uh, say in terms of the size of the family that they're going to have. Because religion doesn't have as big a play. Your co-workers don't tell you to have kids. Uh, you know, uh, your family isn't necessarily as integrated into your life. And, and you have just have different role models and different aspirations in the city. So what happens as part of that, the first thing women tend to do is contraption, which means they tend to get married later if they get married at all. They tend to have their first child later, later in many countries, uh, and they tend to have fewer children. But even in developing countries, even if they still get married earlier, like in a place like Brazil, they have their first kid, they might have their second, but sterilization rates are incredibly high at an early age in a place like Brazil, as they are in India, where women are trying to control the number of children that they have because they want to have some independence in terms of their ability to... Uh, uh, to um, uh, lead the kind of life that they, they want to lead. All of that adds up to declining birth rates. And you, you don't have to be, uh, you know, a super statistician to figure this out. Just go back and look on the UN's website. They have birth rates in 1960, 
their birth rates in 2020, go take a look at the difference. I mean, in Brazil, it was, I think, around six in 1960. And even using the UN's numbers, which are reasonably accurate, I would say, for Brazil, it's 1.8 today. So you said something's happening. <laughs> but it's not just happening there. It's happening everywhere. In every single country in the world, with the exception of one, all birth rates are declining in every single country. What's the one exception, by the way? Israel. Oh, okay. The book has been out for a while. Uh, what's the difference between the initial reaction to the book and uh, the re re reaction now? Uh, the book, the book's done pretty well. It's it's now out in I think ten languages, um, and uh, uh, was on the bestseller last year in Canada. Um, reviewed in the Wall Street Journal, New York Times. It's uh, has had at least three articles in the Economist about it. So it's it's a bit of a phenomenon. Um, I, I don't want to overstate the case. I mean, it's not like we wrote you know Michelle Obama's book and sold millions of copies or anything. But I mean, it's uh, uh, the way I described it to John Ebbetson the other day. As I said, it's a little bit like uh, you know the Velvet Underground's first album. I mean, it didn't sell you know as many copies as the Saturday Night Fever uh, soundtrack, but ev everybody who bought it started a band. And it's like anybody who's interested in um, in demography has read this book. So if I talk to anybody who's uh, who's um, interested in this topic, they invariably have read the book or have heard about it or read a review or whatever. So it's it, the, the initial reaction was interest and a fair amount of pushback by the, uh, I would say, more traditional demographers where they said, you're just wrong. So most of the conversations I had with journalists and John had with journalists were, show me why you're right and why everybody else, uh, you know, the, the, the bigger authorities in this area could possibly be wrong. And so a lot of the conversations were about that. Now the conversations have completely changed. It's it's over the last two years, what we put out has been pretty much accepted as what's happening. We're gonna see the UN and other demographic experts that are gonna be moving in this direction because there's been a, a few really important studies that have come out now showing uh, that the trend that we talked about in that book and Wolfgang Lutz was talking about and some other people were talking about, that's becoming more of the consensus opinion. And um, so as, as a result, what's happened is the interviews that I do these days are not about prove it. They're about what are the consequences of this? So what's the world going to look like as a result of this? Yeah, thanks for that's my perspective as well, is that there was a bit of resistance when you first came out. Now there's more acceptance. So good for you. Um, your conclusion that uh, world population is about to plateau is likely good news for the planet, especially in terms of resource conservation and the protection of the environment. What are uh, the other most likely consequences of uh, the population trends that you have identified? Well, one of the things that I'm really trying to uh, say to people these days when we talk about the book is they kind of get the right message, but they sort of jump to the wrong conclusion. So uh, particularly people who are really interested in uh, climate and the environment, the, the message that they get is, for the people who are prepared to accept that what we're talking about, because there's a lot of other people, particularly on the, uh, on the environmental side, who've been beating the drum on population growth for so long, they, they, they can't hear any other music. <laughs> hmm. they, just, they just want to keep beating that drum. And okay, I mean, but the world is, I mean, the, the facts are not supporting the polar liquid things. I, mean, I don't know how he could suggest that, uh, that there's going to be a different scenario than what we talk about, an empty planet. Uh, but um, it, it's moving from the, that discussion, the size of the population, to the structure of the population, because that's really the most important part of this. It's not the, the second most important part. It's not just the size. 
It's what the population is going to look like. So one thing that we know is the population, because we're not having enough kids to uh, replace, we're getting to the point where the death rate is going to exceed the, uh, the, the birth rate. And in, in many countries, it already has. Um, we're getting to a point where the aging of the population is just going to rapidly increase. So the population we're going to be looking at is going to be much older. The other thing, and this is, uh, we don't talk about it in an empty planet, and it's something that I, uh, I've, I get at more in next, because it already applies to Canada. Canada is a great example of this, is the population is going to become more female. As the population ages, we become more female. And the reason for that is people uh, always go back to, well, you know, it's because old women outlive old men. Yes, but that's not the reason. The reason is because women outlive men at every year, every, every age category after about the age of 25. And that's because of the 20 reasons that somebody can die prematurely uh, uh, of the, that are tracked by the World Health Organization. 16 of them are more common among men. <laughs> so after the age of 30, there's more women in the population than men. And that, that number expands every year. And that's done, done after, uh, at birth, there are always more boys born than girls. In every country, except where there's artificial, there's an artificial intervention in the families, where the where the number is, you know, wildly out of place. Like, in, for example, a place like China or India. Um, but there's always more boys born than girls. And by the age of 30 in Canada, there's more girls in the population at the age of 30 than there is boys. And every year after that, it starts to expand. It's the same phenomenon in every country, and it's because men are like mayflies; they die fast. And 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 so what we're going to see is a very urban population because the rural areas are shrinking, the pressures that we're creating, lower fertility continuing, uh, birth rates continuing to decline in the countries in which they're higher now, and the population that's left, very urban, much older, and increasingly female. So back in the 1970s, Don, there were more women in Canada, or more men in Canada than there were women. You're a pollster. You know every sample that we do right now has to be at least 52 or 53 percent. Uh, female right. instead of men, because that's the that's the proportions of the population. That's changed in half a century. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Those are all uh, in very the interesting uh, points that I think a lot of people uh, don't know about and uh, uh, will appreciate hearing. Um, I, I'm really uh, particularly interested in what is happening in the world's two most populated countries, China and India. Can you describe uh, what's going on in those two countries right now? Well, there's been a lot of news, Don, over the space of the last couple of weeks. I know because you've been sending me uh, things on Twitter and uh, in emails, and I've been following it really closely, too, because it's fascinating. Um, because the COVID pandemic has accelerated um, what's been happening in populations, the, the, the patterns that we're talking about in empty planet. So when we talked about mid-century with the peak and the size of the peak, it's going to be interesting to see modeling as we get better data coming out of the pandemic what's going to happen to that. There's some potential that the peak could be lower and that the date of the start of the global decline could be sooner now as a result of what's happening in the pandemic. So what we've seen in China, the world's most populous country, is that while the Chinese state, because uh, they just released their decennial census, their 10-year census similar to what we do in Canada, they just released it at the end of May. And what it shows is a slight increase in the Chinese population, if we can trust the figure, but that their birth rate um, has gone from 1.5 to 1. There's in fact been a 20%, it's an 18% actually, decline in year-over-year -year births from 1919 to 2020, which is shocking. Wow, yeah. So their birth rate is now down almost the same level as Japan's. 
And Japan loses 400,000 people from its population every year. They're going to lose, you know, just add it up. I mean, over the next 10 years, they're going to lose 5 million people from a population of about 125. Their uh, median uh, age is 48. That means half the population is older and half the population is younger. Canada's not far off of that. We're at 41. So um, in China, what's interesting is that these data, which you know that government's very protective of, are now coming out showing China's birth rate at 1.3. You know what the UN has it at in its modeling? 1.8 and increasing. So you sit back and you say, really, guys? Really? I mean, the Chinese government, which you know is probably torquing the stats, they're half a kid smaller than what the UN has. India, which the UN until last year um, still had above replacement rate, great replacement rate, so all the listeners understand. Replacement rate. So replacement rate is you're having enough people in your country to simply, uh, enough kids in your country to simply replace the people. Who, um, so uh, you can you can alter that equation by having lots of immigration, and some countries do, but uh, in most countries it's just a it's it's just a, a replacement of the people who are live, leaving this mortal. To, in order to have that, you need at least 2.1. That's one for you, one for your partner, and a little bit extra for those kids who don't make it in adulthood, or for people who can't have kids, so or decide not to have kids. So it has to be 2.1. China is 1.3. Think about that. 1.3. India is now at 2. Point just at replacement. And they're going through the pandemic in which there's excessive premature death among the fastest growing part of the population, which is people over the age of 65. Right. Yeah. So you sit back and you say, okay, well, I think the UN's going to be adjusting its numbers down 1.8 to 1.3. I mean, it makes no sense. You know, these are countries as well that uh, have very little, if any, immigration. And, and, and you know Japan. It's the other. Spe- it's the other. It's the other direction, actually. Yeah, yeah. Japan, especially, is uh, probably the most homogeneous uh, country in the world at the moment, uh, along with the, maybe uh, North Korea. Um, China recently announced, I think, a three-child policy in an attempt to reverse its decline. You know, what do you think is the likelihood of success with that new policy? Um, you could make children free in China, and you could make them career neutral in China. And you may have a bit of a bump in terms of fertility, but given what the government has announced, which is basically a three-child policy without very much else to help with the cost of raising kids or the career prospects of women who decide that they want to be mothers, they might as well tell them they can have a million kids. Right. It's not, it's not going to have any effect. The problem isn't their ability to have children. The problem isn't their willingness to have children. Well, actually, that is their problem. The problem isn't that, that people want to have kids that they can't have. They don't want to have them. Right. And, and it's not just in China. This is the interesting part. It's in Singapore. It's in, it's in Thailand. It's in South Korea. We have a whole chapter in, in uh, Empty Planet. South Korea's birth rate is now below one. They don't have a one-child policy. What is this? Well, this is South Korea, young South Korean women deciding they want a different future other than being mothers. Well, just as a side point, I mean, there's been lots of uh, jurisdictions have tried to increase fertility rates, Quebec being one. Uh, hasn't worked. It hasn't worked. So uh, it, it's clear that uh, societal pressures are, are really uh, directing women and, and the number of children that they have. Uh, you in your book, birth, yeah. go the ahead. The birth rate yeah. today, Don, I was going to say, one of my favorite figures is the birth rate in, in North America today for women over the age of 40 is higher than it is for women under the age of 20. Well, that's, that's a bit of a surprise, isn't it? 
<laughs> wow. It's like, but every day I see something. And it's just yeah. like, yeah. And, and, and it always it's a surprise to me when people are surprised. <laughs> in your book, you also point out that even in Africa, where fertility rates are probably the highest in the world, there is early evidence of significant slowing of these fertility rates. Um, while countries, homogeneous countries like Japan, are already in, in steep decline. And um, I, I think I read some, somewhere where Japan's going to go from 125, maybe it was in your book, 125 million to like 85 million in a, in a very short period of time. What does that do to the country in terms of being able to keep its economy going? Well, there was a, it, it's interesting, you know, the empty planet's kind of taken on a life of its own. It's, it's funny, I, I, uh, I get people come up to me and start talking about all of this stuff that don't even know that I wrote them. Or that <laughs> so it's, it's kind of taken on a bit of a life of its own. And uh, one of the things that shows that something, an idea is taken on a life of its own is when other scholars pick something up and just run with it and, 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 and take a look at uh, the implications. And there was a, a, a very well-regarded economist at Stanford University. And I read about the piece of research that he did actually in uh, a column uh, by a columnist in the, um, in the New York Times. And it, 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 the, the analysis he did was what, of what he called the empty planet result. And it's like, oh, that's kind of neat. Uh, the empty planet result. And, and uh, so I went and I looked at the research and it literally was, he read the book and he said, okay, what are the macroeconomic and microeconomic implications of what these guys said? So first of all, you know, they're right. This is, this is what's happening. But what are the implications? So it's a very long article uh, in which he does basically all the calculus around what the effect is going to be economically of population change and also, well, in two, in two regards. One of them is in terms of growth and the other one is in terms of innovation. And basically what he does is he posits three different models of what the future could be. He says there could be one in which the population continues to increase and then there's really nothing to Growth will continue, innovation will continue. His big point being that innovation is a young person's game. Um, the second thing he says is there's another model that we reach that's stasis, uh, which the population reaches at sort of a reasonable level and we just kind of continue on. And maybe at a little bit of a lower level in terms of economic growth, maybe innovations are curtailed to a certain extent, but we reach a form of stasis. And then he, and then he says there's a third model in which the empty planet result uh, in, um, takes effect and what happens is uh, economic growth declines every year or at minimum stagnates and innovation declines every year because we lack the young workforce to be able to innovate. And what he concludes is there's really only two models. He says the, the one that everybody thinks that we're going to reach is the one which is in the middle is the stasis model. He says it's a false model. You either increase your population or your population goes in the other direction. And that's the empty planet result. And the question is, how far down and how much does this restrict economic growth and how does it affect, ultimately affect innovation is going to be a very interesting question going forward. And so it was like, oh, I never thought of that. Ibbotson never thought that when we were writing the book, but there's an interesting brand extension. I never thought about it, but, um, well, we sort of thought about it, but we didn't feel like we were expert on that. We were just trying to, to make one point. And we spent, you know, over 200 pages just making that one point, but. This guy does a very interesting analysis. And, and interestingly enough, last month, they did a big review of that article in The Economist, which I think um, if you want to read something on it, anybody who's listening to this podcast, read what The Economist wrote 
because it, it's at least in English where the other articles in math. Right. <laughs> but right. so the English one's easier easier to read. But it's it's I think what we're going to see, Don, is a, is a very interesting discussion going forward uh, that we're just tweeting, we're just waking up to it. And and what that economist at Stanford did, uh, we're going to see a lot more of that. Yeah, just this is a completely um, little aside on this, but in, in Atlantic Canada, we've actually experienced this over the last 20 or 30 years by having very weak uh, uh, population growth, uh, which has been accompanied by very weak uh, economic growth. So we've been we've been a model for what happens when your population is stagnant or, or growing very slowly. Uh, the good news is that that's changed a little bit, but but I, I think the economic consequences of a declining population uh, need to be addressed and, and people need to start to prepare for it for sure. Um, Canada's uh, population growth and economic growth have, have, in, have increasingly depended on immigration. Over the past five decades, Canada has become one of the most diversified populations in the world. In your book, you suggest that the need to immigrate will likely decrease as the demand for labor increases in countries which previously had an oversupply of labor. What impact will uh, will this have on the ability for countries like Canada with a high dependence on immigration to recruit the same quality or even the same quantity of immigrants as it currently uh, is able to do going forward? Well, you know, the interesting thing on the immigrant uh, immigration story is that um, uh, it is the most controversial one of the more controversial elements of the book, we've had more pushback on, on that one than just about anything else we wrote, um, because both John and I are um, realistic about immigration. And uh, the, being realistic about it is that uh, if Canadians understood what was really going on, they'd understand the necessity of immigration. Our population is rapidly aging. In fact, the reason our population continues to grow is mostly from two things. One of them is people not dying as fast as they used to. And the second thing is immigration. We, we're, our birth rate's now down to its historic low. One, uh, we'll see what it is post-pandemic. As a result of the pandemic, Statistics Canada has a But um, So the only way that you can keep things going is immigration. And we know the effect of not having immigration because we saw it over the space of the last 18 months in which Canada's population uh, growth in the first time in I don't know exactly how many years, but it's at least two decades, has fallen below 1% a year. Um, and Canada was one of the was one of the most rapidly growing country in the in the old G7 or in the G7 in terms of population, even faster than the United States, mostly as a result of immigration. But when you close the, the borders as a result of um, of, uh, of the pandemic, that collapses, and that's exactly what's happening. So the government's starting to twig to the idea. And by the way, not this government, um, but previous governments, you know, all going all the way back to Brian Mulroney, that we needed to have immigration. But our immigration approach has basically been more of one that looks like recruitment. We do it out of economic necessity. I mean, if you talk to people in Europe about immigration, they usually see it as a refugee discussion. In Canada, it's not really a refugee discussion. In fact, you know, truth be told on refugees, we don't uh, per capita or per number of immigrants coming in is the best way of looking at it. Um, percentage wise, we really don't accept that many more refugees in Canada than they do in the United States. It's about the same percentage, even even through the Trump period. That's, right. that's, you have to go look at the data, but it's all there. Um, uh, but um, Canada uh, has taken an approach to immigration that is really more like recruiting, as opposed to maybe how Europeans think about immigration, which is 
uh, you know, opening your borders to people coming across in refugee type circumstances. The problem we're going to run into going forward is that the places that we recruit from are going through the same population changes that we're going through. So the three largest uh, sources of immigrants to Canada today are India, China, and the Philippines. I've already told you the story about India. I've already told you the story about China. Philippines, same thing. Decline of the Catholic religion, high levels of urbanization, education of women. So they're seeing, they're still above three, in, I think, their birth rate, but it's rapidly falling as well. So our three major sources of immigrants are losing um, that group of young people, which we consider to be surplus population that would go to another place, particularly the group with skills, which are the ones that we've been looking for. Because it's not just a numbers game. It's not just to say we're going to bring in a million immigrants. Well, to bring in a million dependents is probably not what we want to do. We want to bring in people who can contribute fairly early because that's what immigration does. It plugs holes fast. Um, and uh, so it's, it's a short to medium term solution to what our issue is going to be. But we're going to be on the same trajectory as Japan, just just a bit late. Uh, we're going to hit it. We're going to start hitting it as we get into you know end of the next decade. Right. Yeah. Uh, as you know, Atlantic Canada's population has grown at a much slower pace than the rest of the country. It's only been until recently that uh, we've uh, started to get some immigration coming into this region. Um, what should policy planners and leaders in the public and private sector be thinking about in terms of growing the population, the economy in this region, maybe in Canada overall, knowing the competition for immigrants is likely to get a lot more difficult? Well, I think the, the first thing is to acknowledge the issue. I mean, it's, it's actually quite difficult, and I read about this in Next, to get politicians to have an honest conversation about what's really going on. Uh, and, and the population situation in Atlantic Canada I mean, we can talk a little bit about immigration. I know, you know, there's been some growth in Halifax. A lot of that growth isn't immigration. A lot of that growth is people leaving Annapolis Royal and moving to Halifax. That's what aging populations do. They, uh, you know, it's not an escape to the country for most people. What they do is they move to you know, nearer suburbs where they can ha have access to families and, and most and assisted care and most importantly, healthcare services. So the, the, the decline in population continues in places like rural Nova Scotia. Um, by the way, Nova Scotia, Atlantic Canada in general, has the most rural population in the country. Everybody thinks that it's, uh, it's in Western Canada. That's not true. Western Canada's population is quite urbanized. Uh, Atlantic Canada has the, a large non-farming rural population. That's interesting. Non-farming yeah. rural population. So um, uh, the, the, the thing about Atlantic Canada is, yes, you're going to have to uh, become more attractive to immigrants because you're not going to get old people to have more babies. And truth is, in Atlantic Canada, it's a very old population. Nova Scotia has the oldest. Actually, I think it's competition now with Newfoundland. I think Newfoundland the oldest population in the country. But Nova Scotia is right there. Um, so they're not, the older you get, the less likely you are to produce new kids. So older populations are less fertile populations. So the only way it can get bigger is if you attract younger immigrants with skills who can participate in the economy. But those skills don't have to be, uh, you know, millwrights. They can also be people who want to serve as... Uh, as uh, long-term care uh, staff, you know, people who want to serve as what we're now calling frontline workers. So it doesn't have to be really, really high skill levels, but people who are ready to work and, and make a contribution in what you're looking for. The problem in Atlantic Canada is the problem uh, is going to have going forward is the same problem Atlantic Canada has always, which is that um, it's going down the road. And uh, I went down the road. My whole family went down. Probably just about everybody <laughs> who has you know, younger university educated kids that you know, 
um, and so do immigrants. So we have immigrants that move to Atlanta. If you look at the numbers for Statistics Canada, after 10 years, the number that actually stay is only a portion of what first moves there and a small portion. So the question is not just attracting immigrants, it's about getting immigrants to stay. So that's, that's the, 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 the two-step challenge, attracting them and getting them to stay. Quebec, by the way, has the same challenge. Right. Uh, I don't know if you've been following what's going on in our smallest province, PEI, but they've had some uh, dramatic improvements in uh, both population growth and uh, economic growth, which are, seem to be tied together. Uh, their retention numbers of immigrants, uh, which were quite low, are, are coming up. Um, a lot of the uh, success is based on the bioscience clusters that they've created over there, which have tracked a lot of immigrant uh, talent. It seemed to be a, a bit of a role model for the rest of the region, I guess. And uh, so uh, we know what's possible because we have a, a we have a local example of what's possible. Uh, I think Newfoundland's on the other end. They're they're in trouble. They're losing population. Have very little immigrants Still, uh, to make up the difference. I just wanted to uh, ask you a, a couple of other questions, Daryl, and then I'll let you go. As you know, there's an initiative called the Century Project uh, that is advocating that Canada aggressively grow its population to 100 million by the end of the century. That sounds like a big number, but it's not actually that much, uh, you know, larger based on the growth that we've had uh, in the past. In your opinion, how much more difficult will this be to achieve with likely fewer immigrants available? Um I think the Century Initiative, uh, their intentions are correct. Their math is suspect. Mm. Um, first of all, I don't know where you're going to find 62 million immigrants, particularly 62 million immigrants that you would want. Um, that's a very interesting challenge. The second challenge is that uh, it's not like the baseline that you have that you're building on is staying constant. And we've seen that um, through the, the course of the pandemic. The population... Canadian population every day, um, the population that's here becomes less fertile and smaller. Um, and uh, so we're having fewer kids, but also we're, our ability to have more kids is, is declining as, as the population ages. So while, you know, the aspiration is to create a hundred, a country of a hundred million, uh, that's, they'd be lucky if they got to 50. And I think even that's pressing it. And the reason is because um, the, not only is the immigrant population changing, but the Canadian baseline is changing at the same time. Right. And, and, you know, uh, I, I've been to see the Century Initiative. I've talked to them. I've been involved in some of their board discussions. I think, you know, they're, they're, they've got the right idea. I think the fixation on the number is a problem because it's not, it's just simply not realistic at all. And it's not, you know, the willingness of Canadians to accept immigrants, although that could be a challenge because it's driving uh, nativist populism all over the world right now. I think Canada may be a bit of, an ex a bit of a lucky exception, um, but I don't know how much is luck and how much is exception in, right. terms, of, in terms of people's willingness to ex accept massive demographic change, because we're not talking about bringing people in from Europe. Uh, we're, the only place that's going to have surplus population going forward is from Africa, and um, that is going to be an interesting challenge when it comes to uh, integration in, in Canada, just as it is in, in Europe to a certain extent. So there'll be some really interesting discussions on this. I think the impulse is correct. I think the number is uh, uh, not achievable. And I think that there are more problems that are associated with what they're thinking about uh, than uh, they're prepared to acknowledge. Uh, just 
they're, they're no, they, they would be prepared to acknowledge, uh, but they're underestimated in terms of cultural acceptance. Right. Yeah, I tend to agree with you on that on that score. Uh, finally, since uh, Empty Planet, you have uh, a new book out called Next. It's actually on my read list. Uh, they're also probably have another chat with you about that at some point. I was going to say, I'll come back and we can talk about that. <laughs> yeah. Can you just give us a little bit uh, of an insight about what the, the new book is about? Well, kind of look at it as a series. Uh, so John Ibbotson and I wrote a number one bestseller called The Big Shift, which was our take on uh, uh, politics. And, and then the next one was, okay, well, let's take The Big Shift global. What's happening in terms of population change? And then the third piece of the third leg of the stool was I wrote a book on my own called um, Next, which is let's talk more specifically about practical implications or consequences about what these population changes are going to be. So what's really happening on the ground in Canada? So I have extensive discussion of what's happening in Atlantic Canada. Um, and, you know, one of the things that uh, I'll say that's uh, really controversial is you know, what I consider to be the vanity of having four separate provincial governments in the region that constitutes about 4% of the national population. I mean, just how do you sustain that? And, you know, by the time we get to the, you know, 2060, 2070, and this is based on, uh, you know, uh, Statistics Canada's way too optimistic projections about population growth, um, uh, we're going to be down to, you know, brushing up against 1% of uh, the in, in Atlanta Canada, unless something dramatically changes. So, you know, who's, who's going to bell the cat there about how maybe we can put it together as something that's a functioning area of the country that has its own non-dependent economy that's based on you know, transfer payments from the, from, from the rest of the country. Uh, and one of the things has to be uh, taking a look at the structure of the public service and the structure of the public services that are being delivered in Atlanta, Canada. I mean, you raise Prince Edward Island as a great example, but Prince Edward Island is 150,000 people. It's really, really small. I think at that level, you may be able to have an impact. And, but in some of the other provinces, we're talking about really old populations, very, um, and, and Prince Edward Island is also a small place, uh, you know, fairly geographically um, expansive territories with a lot of diversity in terms of the circumstances that people are living in. It's, it's going to be a lot tougher, but so far, uh, what I get out of, from Atlantic Canadian politicians is what I hear short-term fixes and nostalgia. Um, and so what I wrote about in, in, in Empty Planet was, guys, we need to have, or, or sorry, in, uh, in Next was about, let's, it's time to have a heroic conversation about the future of Atlanta, Canada. I love it too much to see this going up. It's, we need a realistic discussion. Well, Daryl, you just brought up a subject that we're going to have to get back to for sure. Uh, it's been really uh, a great conversation. Uh, a lot of insight on a very important topic. Uh, I'm sure that uh, people who listen will get a lot out of our conversation. And I want to thank you uh, for being on the podcast. And, you know, congratulations on the success of Empty Planet. Thanks a lot, Don. It's a real pleasure to be on. Appreciate it. Okay. Have a great day. Thanks. You've been listening to the latest episode of Insights on the Huddle Podcast Network, hosted by Don Mills and David Campbell. Mark Legere and Liam Floyd helped produce this episode. You can subscribe by searching for Huddle Insights on podcast platforms like Apple and Spotify. And we care about what you think, so please give the show a rating and a review. Don and David will be back next week.